The Tree of Tremendousness by Thomas Jackson Chapter 2 The Demon Beneath the Tree Episode 2 A Visit to London Gradually, as time went on, the periods during which the bad mother ruled my life became longer and longer, and those ruled by the good correspondingly short, the bad becoming more and more hateful in relation to the increasingly lost blessedness of the good. It was just at this point of steep decline in my felicity that my father came home on leave. My mother woke me one morning and told me that she had a surprise for me. I was dressed as quickly as possible and fell rather than walked into the downstairs living room. I knew immediately I saw him who it was. I was stunned. He was amazing. This really was God coming to breakfast. I instantly and absolutely adored him. He was far more wonderful than he'd been even in his photographs and in my most adventurous fantasies. He held me up in the air and twirled me high over his head and whirled me round and round. I shrieked with joy. He was introduced to Pam. She too, I could see once, immediately adored him. He tickled Peter behind the ear, who was so overwhelmed he had to run out into the garden and gallop round and round as fast as he could, barking insanely. But for once, the special glory of the doggies, their wholehearted, panting, tail-waggingly embrace of the wonder of life, this sublimity spread to the humans. It was a day of joyful carnival. We opened a large tin of spam that had been saved against just such an occasion and fried it. My father had not, in fact, been fighting in the army at all, but servicing railway engines behind the lines in Egypt. But this made not a whit of difference to his status as returned hero warrior. You only had to look at his bronzed, handsome countenance and curly black hair to see what a hero he was. He's full of stories about the war, how a sandstorm had buried an engine completely, how he'd ridden on a camel, the Arabs would swap dates for cigarettes how he'd been taken out to repair a broken-down engine in a train carrying a Montgomery, how he'd shaken hands with Montgomery, and Monty had said, railways are the arteries of war, how a corporal had got on the camel and the creature ran off with the corporal sitting on it facing backwards, clinging on for dear life, laugh, you should have seen it, how the cunning British strategy had been to retreat nearly all the way to Alexandria so that Rommel pursued too far, and then when he ran out of petrol, we gave him the old one too. We had the trains, you see. It was the trains that made all the difference, railways being the arteries of war. In the afternoon, we had a session of songs round the piano. My mother led us through the popular songs of the war. Run, rabbit, run, we'll meet again. Bluebirds over, it's a long way to Tipperary, Lily Marlene, Daisy Daisy. Then, through her repertoire of Gershwin and Noel Coward, on to Gilbert and Sullivan, my father unforgettably doing his own version of Coco's Little List song from the Mikado, and finally into hymns ancient and modern. We had a special high tea in which a tin of plums was opened and joyfully consumed to the last oozing syrupy drop after which we returned to rapt adoration of my father, sitting round him, listening to more stories, and occasionally breaking into spontaneous choruses of Abide With Me and When Will the Saints 
much like the cherubim and seraphim, I imagine, on an average day in heaven. The next day, my parents had a major row. The cause of the row was my father's announcement he was taking us all for the day to London. This inspirational seizure of the moment, passionate ride on the surge, leaping astride, life's bucking steed, even as it leapt, was entirely typical of him. My mother was of quite opposite temperament. The slightest deviation from the norm or smallest risk attached to any new step filled her with deep dread and forebodings. Many an expedition in later years was attended by fearful anxieties on my mother's part that she'd left the gas on or had omitted to put up the fire guard. we got to go back. We're not going back. The house will be burnt down. Let it burn. Typical. Typical. You don't care if the house burns down. You're unbelievable. You just don't care. You'll burn me down. The argument went on all day. My father saying he never saw me and it was important that I had memories of going to London with him. Taking him to be killed, you mean? Don't talk, soft woman. Goring's been letting you in on his plans, has he? And so on, and so on. My mother became hysterical with grief that his one leave for years should have been ruined by this appalling contention that neither of them seemed able to stop or control. In the end, it was agreed with some relief by both of them, and now much more for the reason it would enable them to be apart from each other, rather than with reference to the original cause of the dispute that my father and I should go on our own. Very early the next morning, Every drop of the stolen time with my father, as precious as each drop of the holy blood in a chalice. We got up and tipped down downstairs, my faculties still suspended by sleep, and night still pressing back on the window panes, and had hot sweet tea and sound sandwiches. I had vague memories of my mother waving as a tearful goodbye. I was already sick with excitement. I remember we got a lift in Tommy Hollowell's milk lorry that collected milk from neighbouring farms and transported it in churns to Wellingborough Station. My dad and me are going to London, my dad and me are going to London. Boom, 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 sang back the lorry. Soft, 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 chorus the milk. Hosanna, Hosanna, rang and reverberated the mass choirs of fields and trees and birds. At Wellingborough Station, the train was already waiting, the engine hissing and doubting and sending out great gobs and showers of steam. Pish, 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 shroom, shroom, shroom. The huge connecting rods took hold and the wheels began to turn. Moving, moving, hurrah, we're off. There were a few other travellers in the carriage at this early hour, but I lost no time in informing them about our travel arrangements and plans for the day. This is my dad. He's in the army in Egypt. He's fighting Hitler. He had a ride on a camel. In peacetime, he's a railway fitter and earns £4.50 a week. 
I ran to the compartment next door. My dad's in the next compartment. He fought Rommel in the desert. He's a railway engineer. Oh, he's really brave. In peacetime, he earns... Before I could divulge more, my father had guided my prattling tongue back to our compartment, which smelt of steam and leather and had antimacassars and photographs of Birmingham City Hall, Warwick Castle, Selby Diaduct, and other glories of LMS's fiefdom. Ratatatatata, We stopped at Wolverton. Slump, slump. The train began to move again. Ratatatatata, ratatatatata. Bletchley, ratatatatata, ratatatatata, ratatatatata. Leighton Buzzard. Daddy, why's this place got such a funny name? Well, once upon a time, this little town was about to be eaten up by a huge bird with sharp claws and a great black beak called a buzzard. But just as it was going to fly down to eat up town, a junior clerk in the railway sorting office called Leighton got some hot sealing wax from the parcel in the office and poured it out on road. The bird was attracted by the bright red colour and flew down to Luke and got its claws stuck in it. It pulled and pulled and pulled, but the more it pulled, the more firmly it got stuck. It pulled and it pulled and it pulled, but it was struck. So then Leighton killed it with his penknife. So now town's called Leighton Bosom. Oh, right. Ratatatatata, ratatatatata, Larkinsian cooling towers, long shadowed cattle. Are we there yet? Not quite, but nearly. Horse distemper boards, Odeon cinemas, floatings of industrial froth, Cheddington, Hemel Hempstead. Is this London? No, not yet. Almost, almost. Ratatatatata, ratatatatata. At last, a long easing and slowing with whistles and sighs and groans, and we are running into King's Cross. By this time, my excitement was so intense, I was on the verge of seizure. There were millions of people on the platforms, disorientated ants, madly rushing about their separate and solipsistic purposes. It was amazing. It was beyond anything hitherto I'd been able to conceive. Would all travellers from Mars please report at the station master's office? Anyone going to Venus via Tokyo, Melbourne, Calcutta, Vancouver, Cape Town, Valparaiso, Vladivostok, and the rings of Saturn should make sure they have a valid return ticket. As the major purpose of the expedition was to see an underground train, we went down into the underground. We descended, descending the stair. Down, 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 at the turning of the second stair. Down, 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 steps and corridors, steps and escalators. Down, 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 a long tubular swallowing throat, swallowing, swallowing. At last, we came out of the stairwell. We waited on the platform for a train to arrive. One came, long and red and tubular. We boarded it. My disappointment was so extreme, I burst into tears. 
I'd imagined that tube trains would be like the trams I'd seen in Sheffield, not the tame domesticated creatures they have in Manchester today, but magnificent wild bison roaming the plains, splendid beasts that clanged and rattled and shot forth great electric sparks and cried, woo, woo, as they charged along. But gradually, as I tried my eyes on my father's handkerchief, I began to realise that if the appearance of tube trains was appallingly ordinary and disappointing, their purpose, of which nobody had informed me, oh, how typical of grown-ups, to miss the one thing that was vitally important, this was absolutely fascinating. For I now saw that the London Underground System had been designed as a gigantic game of Monopoly, you could see the sights you could buy, Piccadilly, Leicester Square, Covent Garden, and so on, neatly posted up on the sides of the cars. And not only the ones you got on the derivative board game, of which this was clearly the original platonic exemplar, but many others too. You bought a card at ground level for the sights you wanted to buy, and then rode round on the train to it and all the others that you wanted to purchase. Many of the passengers were carrying brief and attaché cases, presumably to carry the monopoly money that they had already won and needed for further transactions. I was so preoccupied with the wonder of all this, I never noticed that we'd left the train and ascended to the upper air to be hit by roaring, seething, hammering London as by a tidal wave. It was overwhelming, long-blasting, stupendous. We walked along Buckingham Palace Road, and we made it in London, and we made it in London. Ba -ba -ba -ba, ba -ba 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 -ba. Walked up Victoria Street. I waltzed, strutted, cavorted, capered, tripped, and tapped on beside him, as proud as any guardsman stamping his feet outside Buckingham Palace. Boom. My mind seethed with questions that clamoured on my tongue more quickly than that nimble organ could ask them. Why are soldiers called soldiers? Is London bigger than Wellingborough? Does the king have to do wee-wees like everyone else? But number two, do English lady soldiers and sailors just fight German lady soldiers and sailors, or do they have to fight the men as well? We stood on Westminster Bridge and surveyed the Houses of Parliament, that crocketed and pinnacled barrage balloon moored so improbably beside the Thames. I could not understand the detail, of course, but I caught the thrill of my father's emotion as we gazed at that talking shop where so many boring speeches have been numbly endured, but also where so much history lies waiting to be ignited by great events, as indeed by Churchill in 1943 it was. By Mr Churchill and Mr Eden, they make the great speeches in there, you know. It was only long after the war I discovered that had Hitler conquered Britain, my father, along with every other British male between the ages of 16 and 45, was to be transported to the continent to be worked and starved to death in slave labour camps. As if in a James Bond film, a mysterious and sinister figure called Dr Six had already been appointed to be Gauleiter of Britain. 
the SS were going to take over Eton as a training college for their officers, doubtless, so that their Steinborn Führers could learn to commit their horrific crimes with the cricket-attested sense of fair play, for which the English are famous. The dizzying speculations of fantasy are only outdone by reality itself. My father was a man of vivid and sensitive historical imagination, a faculty which has descended to me. And even in these days, when national heritage has swept and garnished every monument in the land and chased away every spirit and shadow of mystery with gift shops, video information packs, six significant places in the life of Shakespeare tea towels and daily horariums in the life of a monk, even now, I thrill among the glass and concrete financial fortresses of the city of London to the many-layered pressures of the past muttering in the earth beneath. You can feel these presences in the streets of Southwark, even though every Elizabethan building except the George in Borough High Street has long gone, and the social conditions so graphically described by Dickens quite changed. We also visited the zoo in Regent's Park, mostly closed, on account of the war. But there was, I remember, a huge alligator who lay a silent and unmoving behemoth in his tank, a survivor from a past older than the Parliament at Westminster. And people threw coins which caught in the green and castellated corrugates of his back, wobbling lozenges glinting through the water as if they were pieces of eight, winking in far-off lagoons. We passed huge venomous snakes, or so they seemed to me, blood-freezing, limb-paralyzing. Every cell of your body broke out in trembling. Your hair rose upright, tingling on your scalp. Sweat broke out on your forehead in big cold drops, and you dug your fingernails into your clammy palms. Millennia of evolution are suddenly annulled, and once again you are your private ancestor, faced with a snake, the rustle in the undergrowth, the galloping fear, the heat and silence, the stench of dampness, the bamboos whipping your face. Ch, 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 alone and terrified in the dark forest. I was now so tired, my father had to carry me most of the way to St Pancras. We pulled out of the station, just as the first bombs were beginning to fall, the first that had fallen for months. I never could do without it, though. I remember my father remarking to the man in the seat next door as I fell back into profound sleep, awakening to find myself in my bed in my very own bedroom late the next morning. My dad and I have been to London, I sneered to the girl on the toadstool. We escaped from you and the bad mother and all the other women and we went to London. We defied you and we got away with it, so there. A few days later, my father returned to the war. Thank you.